Welcome to the Pastor's Bible Class from St. Paul's Lutheran Church of De Pere, Missouri. To all who are listening on KFUO, today we're going to be studying the lessons for next Sunday, the seventh Sunday of Easter. And before we do so, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. We thank you, Heavenly Father, through your dear Son, Jesus Christ, that you graciously kept us this night that you granted us peaceful and refreshing sleep, that you brought us to the beginning of yet another day filled with your grace. We pray that today you would open our hearts, open our minds to the truth of your holy word, that we might read it, that we might understand it, that we might inwardly digest it, but most importantly, that as we take your word to heart, we might live according to it, that you might receive all praise and glory. So bless our study today. Pour out your Spirit upon us, and fill us, strengthen us with a gift of faith. We pray these and all things in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The lessons for today begin with a reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. As you likely know, this past Thursday we observed Ascension Day. It's a very important day for us Christians. It marks the end of the earthly life of Jesus and the beginning of his reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. For on that day he took his throne at his Father's right hand, and he rules over all things for the sake of his church. He rules over all things for our sake. Once again, this first lesson for the last week of the Easter season is from the book of Acts, the Acts is really the encore to Easter. It's about what Jesus continued to do and continues to do even now in and through his church. Today's lesson tells about an awkward time, the ten days in between our Lord's ascension and the day of Pentecost. Jesus had returned to heaven, but the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been given. It was a time of waiting, a time of uncertainty about what would happen next? I can't help thinking that this is a very timely message that God has provided for us all today, for certainly these are awkward times, uncertain times. We spent a great deal of time waiting, and we're not sure what's coming next. But Jesus has ascended. He's on his glory's throne, and remember, he is ruling over all things for us. And so the lesson begins, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. He was taken up, and, and try to imagine what that scene was like. As, as they're standing, he's talking to them, giving his final instructions, and suddenly he begins to rise. They had never seen or heard of anything like this before. 
And suddenly a cloud hid him from their view, and we believe that Jesus was exalted to his throne of glory. The disciples returned to Jerusalem. They returned with great joy. They returned a a Sabbath day's journey, which was about 2,000 paces, half to three-quarters of a mile. Back in the book of Exodus, that was the distance from the outer edge of the camp of the Israelites to the tabernacle, which was in the center. This was the amount of distance that Israelites were supposed to be able to cover without calling it work. And so the Mount of Olives was about a Sabbath day's journey away from Jerusalem. They went right up to the upper room where they were staying, and that upper room suggests that this place was well known. This was likely the same place where they had celebrated the Lord's Supper with Jesus, and where he had appeared to them on Easter, where he had appeared to Thomas the next week. It was a special place known to all within the church, and there they waited as the angel had told them. They waited for the gift that Jesus had promised to give them, for the power from on high to begin the ministry that Jesus had called them to do. At that time, the church was only a small group, about 120 believers. Luke began by including another list of the 11 remaining apostles. In Luke 6, verses 14 through 16, he had the same list in a slightly different order. But the last name there was Judas Iscariot. Here they're arranged in such a way as to point out that one was missing. The church included the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the only time that Mary is mentioned outside the Gospels. His brothers, who were they? Were they step-siblings? Were they later children born to Mary and Joseph? Were they cousins of Jesus? In John chapter 7, we're told that, that there was a time when they thought Jesus had lost his mind and they had come to gather him and take him home. But now they're included in this small group of 120. What had changed their minds? Was it the fact that they were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead? This small band of people were devoting themselves to prayer, and that's one of the marks of the church from the very beginning. In verses 15 through 20, then, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons and all was about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, the field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Simon Peter seems to have stood up among the brothers. He he had heard Jesus say to him on the night in the upper room, 
after Jesus had, had revealed that they were all going to betray him and Simon said it wouldn't happen to him, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so Peter steps up. He stands among them all, and he begins to do what Jesus had commanded him to do, to strengthen his brothers. He addressed them as brothers. All of them, this whole group of 120. The 11 disciples didn't lord it over the others. There wasn't a sense of hierarchy at this point. He addressed them as brothers. And he assured them in verses 16 and 17, Scripture had to be fulfilled. All of the events, the betrayal, the death of Judas, the need for a successor were all decreed by God, and now God's plan was unfolding. The scripture he quoted was Psalm 41. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread was lifted up his heel against me. Jesus quoted those same words in John 13 verse 18. Now, verses 18 and 19 in our text are in parenthesis. The words, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, the field of blood. Luke is explaining to Theophilus what had happened to Judas. He didn't include this account in, in his gospel, but Matthew did. In, in Matthew 27, verses 5 through 8, he explained that the priests actually bought the field with the blood money after G Judas had thrown it on the ground, trying to return it to them. Then in verse 20, Peter quoted Psalm 69, verse 25. May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. A prophecy that one of the Messiah's own would desert him. And then he quoted Psalm 109, May another take his office. Peter and the others understood that this was a prophecy that someone must take Judas's place. And so they were all convinced Judas had to be replaced. Jesus told them, in Matthew 19, verse 28, When the Son of Man sits in his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve. Jesus would build his church on the foundation of twelve apostles. Now there were only eleven. and Someone had to take Judas's place. Someone who had the same qualifications as all the other apostles. In verses 21 and 22, Peter goes on to explain, One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Peter was describing what an apostle was and what an apostle did. He had to be a man who had been with Jesus, who had seen and heard and eaten and learned from Jesus. One who had seen him after he had risen from the dead. One who had 
been on the Mount of Olives and watched him ascend into heaven. And then he would be one who would be sent by Jesus to testify to this truth before the world. There were only 12 apostles until Jesus also called St. Paul. This one must be a witness to the resurrection. As you know, a witness in a court of law tells the truth. Nothing but the truth, the whole truth, the facts as he knows them. That was the role of the apostles. They had seen Jesus, they had, they had heard him teach, they had witnessed the resurrection, they had witnessed the ascension, and now they were to tell what they knew to be the truth. These apostles planted churches as they carried the gospel with them throughout the world. They planted a church and, and then moved on. But before they did, they ordained deacons and elders, pastors, who would lead the church after they were gone. These men were given authority by Jesus, who had all authority on heaven and earth. On the night of his resurrection, he gave them the authority to forgive and retain sins, to deliver to the church the blessings that Jesus had earned by his death and resurrection. He had given them the authority of the word of God. He had given them the sacraments and he'd given him his Holy Spirit so that they were inspired to write the books of the New Testament. This was the foundation upon which the church would stand throughout the ages. In verses 23 to 26, they, the group of believers, not the apostles, they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So the, the congregation, they all had input, and they put forward, in other words, they nominated two men that the group felt met all of the qualifications. One was Joseph, called Barsabas, also known as Justice. And then there was Matthias. And then they prayed. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you want to take over the apostolic ministry. They prayed because they believed that the Lord of the church still had all things under his control. They were confident that he'd already made his choice. He would show them who that choice was. He would name the new apostle through them. And so they cast lots. We're not absolutely sure how that was done. One method might have been to write the names on small stones or pieces of broken pottery and put them in some kind of a pot or a large container and shake them really hard, and whichever name flew out first was the choice. This wasn't gambling. This was simply trusting God to make his will known. Apparently, this was often done in the Old Testament as well. The book of Proverbs 16, verse 33, says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They trusted that the Lord would make his will known in this way. The process of calling a pastor is 
is different today, but but much the same. And we at St. Paul's have certainly been through it in, in recent years as, as we've called a new senior pastor, a new associate pastor, and now a new assistant pastor who will be ordained and installed next week. We believe that God still chooses and calls people to serve in his church. Not usually through casting lots, however. He calls through congregations, through voters' assemblies and elections. And just like in those days, every member of the congregation has the right to nominate and the right to vote. I'd like you to, to read to you from the call documents, the diploma vocation that the congregation sends to a candidate when, when they extend a call. It says, having called on the Lord our God for guidance and the exercise of the authority which, which he has vested in his church on earth, we, the members of St. Paul's Lutheran Church, have elected you to the office of pastor and herewith extend to you this formal notification of your form, solemn call. We called upon the Lord our God. We prayed about this. We asked for the Holy Spirit's guidance that God would let his will be known. Because we believe he's still in control. It's still his church. And so he guides the, the entire call process. And he calls, uh, he, he guides the pastor and the congregation in, in determining whether to accept or decline that call. Today, sometimes the call process gets clouded with other issues. There's so much information available out there online. Sometimes it looks more like uh, an HR department hiring an employee. The pastor is just another hired man. But for us in the church, it's much, much more. It still comes down to seeking God's will, to praying, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us what you have chosen. What is God's will? Lord, show us what you have chosen. There are times in our lives when we've prayed and asked for specific directions. In our vocation, in business, finance, moral and ethical situations that arise, are we at a point where we can pray in faith, Lord, Show us, teach us what you have chosen for us to do. In this case, the Lord made his will known. His, he chose Matthias, and that name means the gift of the Lord. And we assume that he faithfully carried out his ministry. Tradition says he preached in Judea, in Judea but he was stoned to death by the Jews. Interesting that neither he nor Joseph Barsabas is ever mentioned again in the New Testament. Jesus built his church on the foundation of the apostles, on their ministry, on the authority which he had given them, on their witness to the resurrection. Today his church still stands on that apostolic authority, on the scriptures and the sacraments. And the church still carries out an apostolic ministry, being witnesses to the resurrection, telling the good news of God's love and his, his gift of eternal life to all who live and believe in him. The church is still all about delivering that forgiveness which Jesus earned on the cross to every penitent sinner's. As we consider this, we must also consider our vocation. We, 
we're reminded that the Lord has also chosen us, you and me. And he has a plan for us. He still has everything under his control. And so day in, day out, we need to seek his will in word, in prayer. For he has chosen you and me as a spouse, a parent, an employer, an employee, a neighbor, a friend, whatever your vocation might be. You have been with Jesus. Your life is an encore to Easter. It's what Jesus continues to do as he works in you and through you to carry out his will. You are an ambassador for Christ sent out into the world to share the good news, to be Jesus' representative. Be what you are, Easter people. The epistle for next week is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, and chapters 5, verses 6 through 11. During these Sundays after Easter, our epistle lessons continue to lead us this year through 1 Peter. St. Peter's words offer hope, real hope, and it's all because of Jesus' resurrection. He offers this hope to Christians who are struggling Peter wrote these words from Rome somewhere around 64-67 AD. It was probably in connection with Nero's persecution. He wrote to elect exiles of the dispersion, Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, who he called resident aliens. They were living in the world, but they were in fact residents of heaven. They were facing discrimination and false accusations and persecution. It was a tough time to be a Christian. But Peter reminded them that they were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for them, who by God's power were being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. They were Easter people. So what does it mean to be a Christian in times like those? And maybe it's a a good lesson for us today. What does it mean to be a Christian today? It's a reminder that discipleship means living under the cross. There will be suffering. But Peter says this suffering comes so that the genuineness of your faith might be tested. He encourages us to put away the old life, and he he includes things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. They have no place in the lives of Christian people. Instead, we're to live like newborn babies, longing for pure spiritual milk, like babies we, we crave, we depend upon God's holy word. And he calls us to live a life of repentance a life that's built on Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. And then he says, Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. We have a mission. We are priests. And like the ancient priesthood, we serve God and we serve our neighbor. That's our mission. That's our purpose for for being here. So Peter's message is, Remember who you are. You're a royal priesthood to represent God before the world and to represent the world before God.
The first part of our text includes chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, who will become or what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter begins by addressing them as beloved, people who are loved. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't be surprised by persecution. It's going to come. The first persecution of Christians was done by Jews, particularly the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin, the leaders. They took out Jesus to save their positions, and so they were always anti-Christian. In Acts chapter 7, we have the story of Stephen. He, they, he accused them of betraying, of murdering Jesus, and they became so enraged, they ground their teeth, they took up stones, and they killed him. Stephen became the first Christian martyr at the hands of the Jews. As Acts chapter 8, verse 1, right after the story of Stephen continues, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church, and they were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. A general persecution against the Christians. They were scattered like seeds. This persecution backfired on the Jews because it led to the spread of the gospel. In Acts chapter 12, we read that Herod the king laid violent hands on those who believed, and, and, they, and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It pleased the Jews. He arrested Peter, but, as you know, an angel delivered Peter from the chains and from the prison. In Acts 17, we read that Paul and Silas ran into persecution in Thessalonica because the Jews were jealous. They stirred up the rabble. They formed a mob, and they basically ran them out of town. Well, at first, the Romans more or less ignored Christianity, thinking it was just a sect or an offshoot of Judaism, which was legal. But by the time Peter wrote this letter, it was clear that Christianity had split with Judaism, and Christianity was considered dangerous. Enter Emperor Nero, who ruled Rome from 54 to 68 during the time when Peter was writing. He was a, a violent and immoral man. After the burning of, of Rome, maybe at his hands, but he blamed the Christians. 
And at that point, this persecution became intense. There were Christians who were crucified. Some were burned at the stake to light the, uh, the racetracks. Others were fed to dogs and lions. It was a horrible time. And now Peter is writing to these exiles throughout Asia Minor saying, don't be surprised when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. And we shouldn't be surprised either. There are more Christians being persecuted today than at any other time in history. At the hands of Muslims, at the hands of communists, at the hands of today's culture, Peter says, don't be surprised at what's going on. But maybe what he's saying to the church is, it's time for us to quit whining about it. In an age of victimization, don't be a victim. Be who you are, Easter people. And then he lays out the proper attitude in, in verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had taught Peter and the others, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus had warned, he foretold, there would be persecution. But he promised, you'll be blessed. Blessed in the kingdom of God. Blessed in heaven. Rejoice and be glad. Peter got it. And then he added in verse 14, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. We don't face insults alone. We know God's Spirit is working within us. In a sense, persecution is evidence that the Spirit is working in you. If you're not being persecuted, the devil isn't really working on you at that point. Is, is your faith real? Or isn't it? In verses 15 and 16, he continues, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There's a difference between suffering for Christ and suffering the effects of your own sinfulness. That's shameful for Christians. But we have no need to be ashamed as we seek to glorify God. Isn't that what our lives are, are all about right now? Glorifying God? So if we're suffering, we're glorifying God. Verses 17 through 19, Peter continued, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Judgment day is coming, and God will have the last day. 
Peter quoted Proverbs 11, verse 31. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? God's justice will be carried out. Let him do the judging. Let him do the punishment. In the meantime, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. God is faithful. He loves you. He, he keeps his promises to you. While we're doing good, living as Christians, giving God glory, our faithful creator is, is watching over us. At that point, the lesson skips. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, which are words to pastors about shepherding the flock, words to young men. Verse 5, Peter quoted Proverbs 3. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Then he said, um, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's where our lesson continues. This is the proper attitude as we face persecution. God always chooses the humble, the lowly, the meek. He chose Israel, the weakest of all the nations. He chose David, a, a young shepherd boy, to fight the, the Goliath. He chose Mary, a humble woman. He chose Bethlehem. He points us to Jesus, his humble birth. His humiliation throughout his life, Palm Sunday as he rode humbly into Jerusalem, his suffering, death, it was all part of God's plan for our salvation. Jesus was humiliated, and then he was exalted. Humble yourselves, and God will exalt you as well. At the right time, his time, the last time. Verse 7 one of the great passages that has meant so much to so many Christians in tough times. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. All your anxieties, everything you worry about, everything that you fear, everything that you suffer. Jesus promised in Matthew 6, don't be anxious saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we, we wear? The Gentiles seek after all those things. Your Heavenly Father knows you need all those things. But seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. All of your anxieties in these days of pandemic, all of your anxieties physical, financial, emotional, whatever it is that's troubling right now, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I think there are times when we all forget that. We forget how much he loves us. This passage means so much. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares so much for you. Peter continued in verses 8 through 11, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you've suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Like soldiers in combat who face deadly enemies, so also do we, Christian. And our life, our faith, our spirituality, our Christianity depends on staying alert to the dangers that are all around us. Peter knew. For he and James and John went out into the Garden of Gethsemane and fell asleep when Jesus told them to watch and pray. Mark chapter 14, Jesus told Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. Peter knew what he was talking about. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Lions roar, but they also stalk. Have you ever seen the videos of a pack of lions hunting as they slowly creep up on their prey? And then they pounce and they gang up and they bring down the prey. Maybe the the prey is able to fight them off for a while, but they keep coming back again and again and again. So the devil is stalking us. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're not defenseless. James 4, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. How do we resist temptation? Look at Jesus. He was tempted. The devil out in the wilderness said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Feed yourself. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Test God. Then he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and he said, I'll give you it all if you fall down and worship me. How did Jesus resist those temptations which, which are so common to all of us? He held on to the word. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Paul taught us about how we're supposed to do battle. In Ephesians 6, he said, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Having the utility belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the good news of peace, taking up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and requests, praying at all times in the Spirit, and being watchful to this end in all perseverance and requests for all the saints. How do we resist? With Christian discipline. With the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, the one offensive weapon in in the armor, in public worship, in scripture study, in devotional reading. We resist him with prayer, calling upon God for help in every time of need. How do we resist? It's in the friends that we choose, the people that we hang out, 
Christians who have suffered with us, those who have come before us as examples, we look to all of them. Peter says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. A little while in comparison to eternal glory. He points out the contrast between the short time that we'll have to suffer in this world and the eternity in which we'll be able to enjoy God's glory. So in these times, God will restore. It's, it's the word of a craftsman, which means to fit or re, refinish something, make it perfect so that you can meet the challenges. God will confirm you and set, set you firmly in place so that you can't be moved. He'll strengthen you. He'll give you all of the endurance, all of the health, all the strength you need. God will establish you on a firm footing so that you can't be moved or shaken. And so he says to him, to God, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has the power forever to keep you strong in faith, to enable you to resist every temptation and so Peter ends this section with, with words of praise in response to God's rich blessing. He ends with the word, Amen. The certainty, it shall be so. In the midst of all of this persecution, in the midst of all that we must endure in this world, God is faithful and he has the power to keep you steadfast in faith. Amen. The gospel is from John 17, verses 1 through 11, a passage which is sometimes known as the high priestly prayer. Once again, put this, this passage in its context. It's part of the account of Maundy Thursday in the upper room when Jesus met with his disciples. And what a night that must have been. He began by washing his disciples' feet and demonstrating for them a, a servant ministry that he expected them to fulfill as well. He gave them a new commandment that they should love one another. He promised them the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Paraclete, who would stand by their side after he had gone. In chapters 15 and 16, then, he taught them one last time, kind of a farewell address. And in chapter 17, Jesus prayed. Having prepared his disciples, he prayed for them. And after this prayer, he and his disciples went out to Gethsemane, and his passion would begin. This prayer is often called the high priestly prayer because like a priest, Jesus was preparing to offer a sacrifice himself on a cross for the sins of the world. And like a, the Old Testament priests, he interceded for his disciples, even as they interceded for their people. There are similarities in this passage to Moses' farewell address and his prayers for the people in Deuteronomy 31 through 33, and Aaron's high priestly prayer in Leviticus 16, where the high priest would always pray for himself and pray for his household and then for the people. Some have even suggested that this is St. John's equivalent to the Lord's Prayer. The pattern is much the same. In this prayer, we're privileged to listen in on the prayers of Jesus, 
Jesus prayed all the time. There were there were times he'd get up early in the morning and go out to a solitary place. And there he'd communicate with his father because he'd come to do his father's will. And so there had to be this constant ongoing communication between him and his father as to what would happen next. But with this prayer, we hear what was on his mind and heart on that night before he died. And in this prayer, Jesus led his disciples and us in on that intimate relationship. John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It begins when Jesus had spoken these words, words about the betrayal, and the new commandment, and Peter's denial, That wonderful promise in in chapter 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And that wonderful promise of the Holy Spirit. And he told them that he would remain in them in in a special way. He was the vine and they were the branches. And he warned them that the world would hate them. And after telling them all these things, their heads must have been spinning. But Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. He turned his his eyes and his words toward his Father. And that was the posture, his posture, anyway, for prayer. It's different from the posture that we often take in which we close our eyes, bow our heads, fold our hands so that we're not distracted. He looked up and focused all of his attention on his Father. He said, Father, the hour has come. He began by addressing God as Father, and and that's how he always addressed his Father, and that's how he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father. The hour that he talked about refers to his death, resurrection, and ascension. Now everything was ready. Several other times he had said, The hour has not yet come. But now all of his life had been moving towards this moment, toward the cross. This was his purpose, his mission in coming to earth. And immediately after this prayer, he started his path to the cross. And so he prayed, glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. Glory is the theme of this first section of the prayer. In the prologue, John wrote, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The glory of the Son takes place at the cross and the tomb and in the ascension. In John's Gospel, we have Jesus' words from the cross uh, recorded for us where he said, It's finished. His work. His glorification was finished at that point. He had done all that he had come to do. 
You have given him authority over all flesh. And again, in the prologue, John wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the Son, had godly authority, which had been granted him to his Father. Authority over all flesh. That term is used in the Old Testament and New to describe the temporary nature of our fleshly existence. But Jesus came to give us eternal life. It was because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was to give this eternal life to all whom the Father had given to him. The son's authority is to give this life um, to, to those that the Father has given to him, and the emphasis is on the role of the Father as the giver of life. It's like all of the pieces of the gospel, everything that John had written about before this, were coming together in this prayer. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is one of the great verses of the New Testament. What is eternal life? Eternal means, according to a secular um, dictionary, without beginning, without end, existing through all times, everlasting. So eternal life is life without end. But Jesus defines eternal life as much more. It's knowing God and knowing Jesus, his Son. Eternal life begins now in our earthly life as we we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, know more and more and more about Jesus. Eternal life continues into the life that we'll experience after death. It's not so much about the length of time. It's more about the quality of this life, our relationship with God. It's seeing God face to face. It's celebrating with him the great joy that is his. And so Jesus defines it that way, that they may know you in an intimate kind of way, a spiritual kind of way, and that they might know the Son whom you have sent, that they might understand the mission, his incarnation, his passion, is all directed by the Father. Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me by his perfect obedience by his works, always done in the Father's name. All of the miracles pointed to his Father. All of his preaching directed to the Father. And soon he would obey his Father to death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus prayed, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You can't help but think about Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus made himself nothing. He humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself. His, he, he became a, a lowly servant, a slave. He died on a cross in humiliation. But then his father exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth should bow and every tongue confess that this Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father and Son glorifying one another. 
Jesus was obviously looking forward to being restored to the glory that he had with his Father prior to his incarnation. So Jesus prayed for himself. And then he prayed for his disciples. In verses 6 through 8 of chapter 17, he prayed, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they are, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I manifested your name. The Jews were always sensitive about using God's name because God's name reveals his true character and nature. At the burning bush, Moses asked, if, if Pharaoh asks who sent me, what should I say? God named himself, I am who I am, Yahweh. This was so sacred to the Jewish people, they were afraid to even pronounce it. And so they substituted Adonai for Yahweh. And they'd use that name rather than that sacred name, I am. But in John's Gospel, Jesus used the I am to identify himself. In Greek, it's ego eimi. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. Now Jesus had made God's name known to the people that God the Father had given him out of the world. And that name is Father. Jesus made God accessible. He makes it possible for us to address God as our Father. And people out of the world the disciples were just ordinary men. They weren't outstanding in any way, but Jesus prayed like, like they were a treasure the Father had given to him. Now, that night they'd fail, and in the days to come they'd fall flat on their faces. But after Pentecost, these men would turn the world upside down. Verses 7 and 8, Jesus said, They've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. I have given them your words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. The disciples didn't yet understand Jesus' teaching about his death and resurrection. But at this point, they have placed their faith in Jesus, at least as God's prophet, as one who speaks God's word. There was a time when everyone else had, had left Jesus. And he turned and looked to, to these and, Will you also go away? And Peter confessed, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus prayed, They've kept your word. They know the truth. They believe that you sent me. And so he prayed for them. Verses 9 through 11. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, 
And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, so keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they're yours. Sounds a little harsh. He's praying for the disciples and and not for the world at this point. The world is opposed to God. The world poses a threat to these disciples. Jesus was preparing to depart from the world, but they would still be in the world, and so Jesus prayed for them. He said, I'm glorified in them. In them? Just a small, ordinary group of men with no uh, unusual intelligence or talents or abilities? At this point, they still seemed to be unable to learn or understand the things that he had said. But Jesus was confident. He knew what they would do after Pentecost. They would indeed glorify him with their lives. Imagine overhearing Jesus praying this to his father, how encouraging that word would be as they listened in on this prayer. And how how encouraging this word is for the church today. Full of all its weaknesses and failures, we still glorify Jesus even today. He said, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. I'm coming to you. He was about to die and rise and ascend. And as he prepared to leave, you, you kind of sense his, his angst, his concern for them as he was leaving them behind. And so he prayed, Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one as we're one. For those three years, Jesus had protected them, but now he entrusted them to his Father. Keep them in your name. Not just protect them physically from the big bad world about, around them, but help them to remain faithful to your name. Protect them spiritually. Keep them strong in faith in all the trials and persecutions that they'll face. Finally, Jesus prayed that they may be one as we are one. What was on his mind that night? He was praying about the unity of the church, that his church established by by these men uh, would be one in heart and purpose and one in their witness. Jesus must have known how badly the church would be divided and how it still is fragmented into so many denominations and factions. But on that night before he died, and even today it is still his will that we as a church would be one. As we look around at the church today, we we know that it's not all that, that Jesus wants us to be. And yet, we today still pray for that same unity, a spirit-given unity in doctrine and practice. And we still seek it, not for our sake, but for the sake of his name, for the witness that it gives to the world, for the mission that Jesus has entrusted to the church. It's important that we, we be one, that we seek to be one, as it assists the mission in the world today. John 17 is Jesus' prayer. 
but it's also our prayer. Here in chapter 17, Jesus prays for us, and he teaches us how to pray. Dear friends, may God bless you as you prepare for worship next Sunday. May he strengthen your faith and, and draw you nearer and dearer to him, keep you in, in this awkward, uncertain time that we're living in. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you in favor and give you his peace. Amen.